This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome to the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Nick Barley and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you all here to the first event, the first sellout event of this year's festival. And it's thanks to your support, of course, that this festival has become so great. The book festival here in Edinburgh is supported by the people of this city in a way like no other on earth. It's a festival which has also built itself up thanks to the support of other organizations in the city. And this event is made possible by, with the support of the City of Literature. As you know, Edinburgh was the first UNESCO City of Literature. And today's author, Christos Cholkas, has been here, has been brought here thanks to the City of Literature's first residency program. Now, you've probably heard a lot about Christos Chilkas and his book, The Slap. And so I think it's fantastic that his book and this event opens the festival. And so please raise the roof for the chair, Stephen Gale, and the author, Christos Chilkas. Welcome to the festival. Um, a quick intro uh, first, if that's okay. Um, but first of all, I have to find it in my notebook. Uh, while, while Stephen's doing that, I'll do <laughs> <laughs> Great start. <laughs> uh, Nick talked about it, but I really, I've been um, in Scotland now for, for just over three months doing a, an incredible residency at a place called Cove Park on the West Coast, which has been one of the times of my life. So I just want to thank Cove Park, I want to thank the City of Literature, Edinburgh, for making it possible, and um, I also want to thank all the people at Cove Park, the staff, and my fellow residents, because it, 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 I, I mean it, it was one of the times of my life. Christos is from Melbourne. Um, the Slap is his fourth novel, uh, the three previous ones being Loaded, which was subsequently filmed as Head On, uh, The Jesus Man, and Dead Europe. Uh, he's also a playwright, essayist, and screenwriter, and uh, was recently, as you know, uh, a fellow at Cove Park. Um, I was going to start, if I may, by just asking you, with the slap, was there any one particular idea, image, event that triggered the writing of the book? Uh, there, was, there was an event which um, uh, happened at a, at a barbecue, not dissimilar to, to the barbecue in the book, where my parents were having a, a day inviting friends and family, and a little boy was... Uh, was, mum was in the kitchen and she was being a very, uh, she, you know, when, when she has people over, she just wants to feed the world. And, um, and it's actually, it tends to be when I, after I'm, I'm at mum and dad's, I tend to go back with a box full of food, <laughs> which, <laughs> which lasts a week. But um, this little boy, a lovely little kid, was playing around her feet while she was cooking and just kind of lifting out pots and pans. Uh, and, pans and at one point, she very, very gently went, you know, and it was not. I think I think that's probably rougher than, than the actual um, little slap she gave him on the buttock. And Jack did put his hands on his hips and went, "No one has the right to touch my body without my permission." And my <laughs> mum just went, "You naughty! You I hit you." <laughs> Which, and I, I've talked about it, but it, it, it is a moment that is. It, it's like a, it's a gift. 
because um, I went back that night, I remember talking to my partner Wayne about it, going, wow, there's this, uh, this world that uh, both my mother is part of, uh, and both this little boy are part of in Australia, but their experiences are, are so vastly different. Like yeah. This woman who grew up in a rural, quite um, very, very tough uh, environment in the Balkans, and this little boy who's grown up in this um, age of entitlement. And I just thought, I, I wanted to write a contemporary novel, and I wanted to write a, a novel about home. And it just seemed to be, it was like I was given this gift to, to begin there. But it's not a book about whether it's right or wrong to, to slap a child. It no. was, uh, the other image, I guess, with the book, I really wanted to, to kind of reflect on what was happening in my country over the last 15 years, a kind of a, a moment of incredible wealth and prosperity, and in, but at the same time a moment of incredible selfishness and xenophobia. And, um, um, so that, that was what fired the, um, the, the writing of the book. I mean, the book, it's, it's in eight sections, eight different points of view. And one of the um, fantastic things about it, it the, there's a terrific narrative momentum in the book. It really moves along at a great lick. And the first section in particular, I was fascinated by because it's a fantastic economy of the way you introduce all of these characters under this sort of setting of the barbecue. Can you just talk a little bit about how you set out the story at the beginning? Oh, look, it's... Just the other day, um, I was, uh, just before I came over to Scotland, I was uh, looking at really early notes, and it's so different. I mean, the, the hardest thing about writing that first chapter was I knew I was going to introduce this cast of characters, and how do you, how do you do that justice? How do you, you know, you read a book, how do you remember these names? How do you remember who these people are? How do they fit in? And so the, the first chapter of that book in that way was the toughest one to write because yeah. I needed to do that, that setting up. Yeah. But um, it would be a lie to say that every, you, know, you know that at the beginning. It was while I discovered the characters in the actual writing of, 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 the, um, of the book itself. And initially there were, uh, I had a plan, I think it was 13 characters. It was going to, um, so I actually had to ditch some of the perspectives. And, and what I discovered, in, I discovered different things in the writing of it. For example, um, as I was writing it, I became more and more fascinated with the nature of the friendship between the three main women in the book and, and what is the nature of that friendship. And, and as a male, kind of trying to observe that and make sense of it, that, that became something fascinating for me. That struck me as being, the, in many ways, the core relationship, it seemed to me, is, is the three women. Well, look, it's, it's, yeah, I think... I think it's a very anti-romantic book. You know, marriage, relationships don't come out uh, very honourably in the in the slap, it's it, um, and I think there's a truth to that, and a particular truth to to the way my generation is uh, in terms of its selfishness. But I think there is so much tenderness between the women, and there's also anger and there's resentments. But um, I, th I think that's where the love is in the in the book uh, resides in in those relationships, and and it's also one of the, you know, I was. Getting to this age, I'm 44, I was in my early 40s when I was writing the book, how do you sustain friendships? How do you sustain love? Um, do you fall into that rut of boredom? Do you, you know, are you doing it because you've had a shared past when you were 18, 19? Or is there something still valuable, still real um, in, the, in those relationships? And that's what I was trying to explore. Would you like to read a bit? Uh, yes. Um, I'm going to read uh, from Rosie, who is the mother of the, the, the child that gets slapped. Um, and it begins, um, she's uh, been avoiding uh, making a phone call to her own mother. It's her, her own mother's birthday. 
happy birthday. Rosalind, it's late. She would not apologise. It took ages to get Hugo to bed. It's much too late for him. I will not answer her. I will not answer her. Did you have a nice birthday? Don't be ridiculous, Rosalind. I'm over 70 years of age. Birthday ceased to matter to me a long time ago. It baffled Rosie how her mother could have lived all her life in the back blocks of Perth and still managed to sound so English, so proper. Though it was an accent that Rosie had come to understand while living in London, it would be unrecognisable to anyone actually from the British Isles. It was an accent learned from the ABC and the BBC World Service generations ago. Did Joan call around? Joan was her mother's best friend. Joan was her mother's only friend, she thought spitefully. She did. Ask about your grandchild. Will you ask about your grandchild? Did Eddie call? No, Edward did not call. I'm sure he will. The sniff from the other end of the line was almost coarse. Your brother will be propped against a bar getting drunk. I doubt he realises what day of the week it is, let alone it's his mother's birthday. Such spite, such soundness in her tone. Rosie felt a prickliness evaporate, felt only pity for her mother. She was relieved. Soon the conversation would be over and there would be nothing to regret. Joan is the only one who thinks of me. She should answer, I called. She should say, you make it so difficult. She could say, we don't call because we don't like you. What Rosie did instead was not answer at all. Soon, soon it would be over. Your brother is a drunk. The men in our family are all drunks and the women in our family all marry them. Rosie felt herself blush. And as she felt the flush of warmth travel across her brow, her cheeks and neck, any sympathy she felt for the lonely old woman disintegrated. You malignant old bitch. It was not true. Gary was not an alcoholic. To drink at all was a sin in a mother's fucked up middle class Christian worldview. Why couldn't she be honest? The real reason she couldn't stand him was because he was a tradesman. Okay, I just rang to say happy birthday. Thank you. I'll let you go to bed. You really should be putting Hugo to bed earlier. She couldn't think fast enough, could not, find a way, could not find a way to disentangle herself from her mother's trap, so she did the wisest thing. Oh, he's usually in bed much earlier, she lied. Maybe he's a little sick. Are you working? Mothers always find the need to create problems for themselves when they're not working. Yeah, Mum. I am fucking working. I'm raising my child. I'll find work next year, when Hugo starts kinder. Please don't tell me you're breastfeeding, still breastfeeding. That could only be answered by another lie. No. When did you stop? Four months ago. She made it up. Totally ridiculous. My God, he's four, isn't he? Just turned four. She couldn't resist it. You didn't call on his birthday. Rosie quickly glanced up at the doorway. Gary was stumbling towards the loo. I sent a card. Is that why you called me? To hurt me? Her mother's tone was furious. Game, set and match. There was nothing else to do but that which her mother expected. I'm sorry. Good night, Rosalind. Thank you for calling. With that, the phone went dead. Nothing any of her friends had said to her had prepared her for the shocking assault of the birth. She had so long fantasised about having a child, had pushed, needled, baited, nagged, threatened Gary into assenting to her desire, that she had not once thought she would hate it. She had loved being pregnant, was fascinated by the changes in her body, the independence of it to herself. She had loved the fact that she smelt and looked different. 
Her body had altered, turned from being angular and boyish into supple and feminine. But the birth had collapsed it back into herself. The only word for it was hell. If pregnancy had been an escape from herself into her body, the labour had been a rebirth in which she had confronted her duplicity, her falseness, her ugliness, her self-hatred. She had been convinced of the sanctity of a home birth and natural delivery. Then it had begun and she had immediately realised her mistake, and by then it was too late to ask for the drugs. The actual memory of it was thankfully fragmented, opaque flashes from a hallucinogenic nightmare. But what she did remember vividly could never forget, as they tried to prize the child out of her, was that all she knew, all she wanted, was that it be taken away from her. She had made a terrible, unspeakable mistake. For the first six months, every time she held Hugo, she shook with terror. She, she was convinced that she would kill him. Every time he cried, she felt herself shrinking further from him. He was an alien being. He was going to destroy her. For six months after the birth, she had continued to go to yoga, had kept wanting to meet regularly with Anouk and Aisha, had wanted to sleep, drink, take drugs, have sex, had wanted to be young. She did not want to be a mother. She felt, if she, she felt as if she were about to break in two, that she was no longer Rosie, but this strange, evil beast that could not feel love for the child it had brought in the world, into the world. She hated reminding herself of it. God, how she had hated that child. She couldn't even call him by his name. She distrusted him, was scared of him. She must have been mad, must have gone mad. The uncontrollable sobbing, the fantasies of drowning him in his bath, of snapping his neck. For six months she had been insane and during that time she had not said a word about it to anyone. Not to her husband, to Aisha, to the mother's group, to her family, not anyone. She had not dared. She smiled and pretended to love her baby. Then one morning she had been frantically trying to organise herself to go to yoga. The child was screaming, crying incessantly, feeding, lullabies, screaming, nothing could stop the terrible sound of him. She felt a moment's strange calm. She'd let him cry. Leave him in the house, that shitty little one-room box they were renting in Richmond. Leave him there. Let the little prick cry himself out. She wanted nothing of it. She was at the front door, keys in her hand, her sports bag over her shoulder. She was going to get into the car and drive. Let him howl. Let the little bastard howl himself to death. Let him choke. She'd opened the door and looked out to the street. It was summer, there was sunlight and no breeze, and there was no one around. She had stood in the doorway for a good ten minutes, her bag still over her shoulder, her fist clenched around the keys, looking out to the world. You're not free, she told herself. If you want to survive this, if you don't want to kill yourself or kill your child, you must realise you're not free. From now on, until he can walk away from you, your life means nothing. His life is all that matters. It was then that she had stepped back and shut the door. She shut out the street, the world. She'd picked up the screaming baby and hugged it close. Hugo, Hugo, it's all right, she whispered. It's going to be fine. I'm here. Thank you. It's, it seemed to me one, one of the book's many great achievements is this way that you trace through uh, the generations, the effect parent has on child, and you, that's a good example how one can understand how Rosie has turned out as she is because of the mother's coldness, and it prefigures the relationship with Hugo. And good. can you talk a bit more about that, that the playing between the generations? I think um, one of the things that that, um, uh, as I said, I wrote the, this this book going into my early forties. Uh, at a time when the question of 
children, the, the question of uh, whether you have or do not have a child had, had become issues, um, not only for myself, but for, for lots of my friends, both women and men. Uh, also at a time when uh, the little kids I'd been holding, my, my nieces, my nephews, my godchildren, friends of children who had been little babies in my arm were now becoming teenagers and young adults and going out into a world that I found quite frightening for them at times. So these questions were, were running around and around in my head. And the other thing I was really struck by was how critical we all were. And I'm not putting myself outside of this. It seemed that everyone... It seemed so difficult to be a parent because everyone had an opinion on it and everyone had a version of what was right or wrong. And I... I don't feel the kind of confidence I had in my early 20s about righteousness or um, how right... <laughs> Life seems much more complicated. Uh, decisions seem much more ambiguous. I know what it's like to have failed. Uh, I know what it's like to have done something shameful. I know what it's like to betray someone. I know what it's like to be not only dishonest in a love relationship but dishonest in a friendship. And I didn't want to put myself outside of that either. And so when I was thinking of structuring this book, I wanted the reader, you start chapter one and you have certain assumptions about this world that I've introduced you to. And you have certain assumptions about these characters. And every chapter I wanted you to, and it's up to you whether I've succeeded or not with that, but every chapter was a forcing you to think through those assumptions and, ha and how they work. That was... And in terms of the question, I mean, sorry, I've kind of gone off from the question. Um, it is true that the generation, my generation, the book, are the most hypocritical and selfish. I'm, I'm harshest on them because I think I need to be. Um, but I think the old, the old man Manolius, who's um, uh, the the he's the oldest character in the book. He's a migrant man coming towards the the end of his life. He has certain assumptions about the world, certain assumptions about sexuality or gender and race, which I don't uh, espouse and I'm really, you know, I'd hate. But he also has a way of understanding what he doesn't have and which I really respect and I think, I can only speak for Australians, I don't know what it's like here, is he doesn't have that sense of entitlement. He doesn't think that um, uh, the world owes him everything. He doesn't think that... Um, <sighs> I think he has a real compassion for for how he he moves in the various communities that that impact on him. I mean, it's, it's struck me you're writing about it's a very sort of conflicted generation that you're writing about. I mean, you have Manolis, the older generation, which has its sort of certainties and codes, whatever as you say one may think of them. And it struck me that with the younger generation, with Connie and Richie, who are teenagers just going to college and so on, there is that sort of optimism, there's an openness about them, I felt, which isn't quite the case with the middle generation characters. Would that be right? Yeah, I think, um, um, I'm sure this happens here, just talking, kind of even being here for, for a few months, you know, the, uh, the young generation get really demonised back home, you know, that they're, and, you know, through the children and young adults in my life, but also I've worked in, in schools as well, I'm actually really hopeful that the way they negotiate difference, the way they are not as intolerant and self-righteous as I was at that age, that gives me a certain hope. Um, there's a generosity, I think, that in the way Connie and Richie, the two young kids are in the book, that 
that is kind of the only hope I see in Australia is that, that if, 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 if we're not going to slide further into um, uh, selfishness and greed and kind of um, increase racism, it's, it's going to have to come from that generation. Going back to the barbecue, the opening thing, I mean, this barbecue is, it struck me as like a sort of meeting of the United Nations or something. I mean, it's just, you know, there's every sort of, uh, you know, background there. Can you talk a bit about how you sort of piece that together, how you made those selections as to who should feature those last eight people of the 13 you mentioned earlier? Uh, look, um, there's, the writing of a book is, is never that straightforward. As I said, there, there was initially the idea that there would be um, 13 characters. Two of those characters don't even exist um, in the book anymore. Um, I knew that I wanted it to be... I knew I, What I knew and what never changed was that Hector, who is the, the man who hosts the barbecue, was going to be the beginning, and I knew Richie was going to end the book. Kind of that, that never wavered. But in terms of which character started fighting for their voice, that, that, that became interesting. And So after the first draft, I had neither of the... Um, neither the parents of Hugo who gets slapped in the book. Um, and I, I was working on the second draft with um, my editor who, um, and publisher, Jane Paul Freeman, who I dedicate the book to. She's a, she's, she's a fantastic reader, fantastic editor. And she said, you're going to have to deal with one of the parents. This voice can't be absent from the book. And I, I realised one of the reasons I was frightened of... Um, was just... It was easy, in a way, to write the, the characters who have a migrant heritage, because I, I understood that, but the, actually to write Gary and Rosie, who are, you know, the version you see of Australians on Neighbours, uh, that, that, that was the hard challenge. And then I had to make the choice of um, whether I was going to concentrate, whether I was going to write in Gary's voice or Rosie's voice, and I started both of them. And then, as I said earlier, I realised that I wanted to write about the friendship of the women, and Rosie as the mother, and because of the history she has with Banuk Aisha, that, that that determined the choice. I was very struck by the fact that, I mean, it's one thing for Manolis to do so, but even the, the Hector Harry generation, they refer to sort of Gary as Australian, even though they're, they're, born, you know, they're born there and so on. And it struck My me parents still do that, yeah. actually. They will say, they'll say the Australesi, which is yeah. the, um, whereas, you know, I've got a friend who's like um, fifth generation Italian, and he's the Italo. He's still Italian. I don't know when you actually <laughs> kind of lose that. But. I mean, one of, the, uh, one of the key passages is, I think it's in the Manolis section, uh, we were talking about this earlier, where um, he has a phrase where he says, he came to Australia to, es I'm paraphrasing, he came to Australia to escape the village in Greece, mm. but actually brought the village with him. Can you talk a little bit more about that sort of first generation migrant experience and what they passed down to the second generation? Um, the reason I'm he hesitating is, you know, I could be sociological about it or, or I can talk about what you, what you, what gets passed down is um, language, a certain uh, sense of exile, a certain sense of um, responsibility. Um, and for a long time for me, and I think for a lot of people in my generation, you had to run away from it, kind of because the, the kind of the weight of what your parents went through in making that, that migrationary journey is so heavy um, um, that you, you can be consumed by it. Um, 
and I'm really actually glad I had that moment to, uh, not, it wasn't a moment, I'm really glad I went through that process of rebelling. Um, and not only rebelling, but actually making a life on my own, but that I all, my parents never stopped loving me and they never stopped, uh, and we together never stopped communicating with, with each other. And I think, I do believe that I can, that I have a fully adult relationship with um, my parents and their peers. But there are a lot of people my age, and I don't know, I don't know how to translate this for, for the experience here in Scotland, but who are quite infantile because they've never had that challenging relationship with their parents. And so their parents have come from civil war and poverty, have worked there so hard in the most menial of jobs. And these kids get a new car on their 18th birthday. They get you know, a mortgage paid on their 25th birthday. And they have no sense of the weight of that history. And that, that, that's why Hector's such a selfish bastard in this book, because he's never had that adult relationship with his parents. I, I don't know what generalisations you can draw from, from that about culture generally, um, except to say Melbourne is not necessarily Australia, but I'm really glad I grew up in, in Melbourne. I grew up in a place where, one, I didn't know Australians spoke English for a long time. Kind of, I had to go to school to discover that. But, um, but also that I knew from six or seven what you do when you went into what, what was different between an Orthodox house and a Catholic house, what you, you know, um, what, it was, what the Muslim holidays were and what the Buddhist holidays were. And you didn't, I didn't even have a consciousness that this was something strange, that this, this is, and that is, in that sense, Melbourne is those, those little villages. And there are tensions in that. And I think we're sometimes scared to talk about the nature of those tensions, but I'm really happy that I grew up in that environment. And I, I feel incredibly grateful for that. Something that I didn't expect. Um, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just on, because I think it's, yeah. sorry about this, Steve, but just with the, the Manolius thing, I'm also, and it's been interesting to, 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 to hear that, to, to, to listen to the reception of the book, love whether people hate it or love, you know, like it here in, you know, the importance of the Manolius chapter for me is that he is so much part of the Australia that I know. Like, yeah. I can't imagine my country without that voice. And it's been such a, a friggin' long time to get that voice in our books. It's taken such a long time to get it on our screens. It's taken such a long time to get it on our theatre stages. And um, yeah. that, that's, that gave it a certain fire to the writing of this book. And there's more... The picture you're painting in the book of, of Australian society is more class-ridden than I would have expected from my limited knowledge of Australia. Can you talk a bit about that class? It's, a, it's, it's the immigrant class, but it's also, it's, it's very materialistic culture you're, you're, yeah. you're dealing with and so I mean, on. I think class is a funny thing, because, you know, coming to this side of the world, class has, <laughs> you're very, very conscious of it. And let me define that by also saying you're very conscious wherever you go in Europe. I think, um, I think class, in France, class in Greece, class in Italy, class in Germany, class in the Czech Republic, doesn't work in it is, is so prevalent, is so prominent that when you travel as an Australian, it's not that we don't have class. And this book is about a new kind of formation in class where, as I said, we became so rich over the 90s and early part of the 21st century, kind of this a massive amount of, of wealth, you know, kind of... And... <laughs> I actually don't know what we spent. We spent it on plasma TVs and really crap 
and there's no, uh, our hospitals are worse than they are, our education system is worse than it's ever been, and we, that was what I wanted to write about. Like, that, that's the new class, that's, uh, and I don't think, the reason, again, I'm hesitating is, I don't even know if I have a language as yet to uh, describe those changes and what that will mean for Australia. Um, and I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a, um, I'm not a, a political theorist, I, and I do respect people who can make that work. I can kind of, what I can do as a novelist is give you a feel of the texture of what this world is like at the moment. Now, as, as you know, um, the book has gathered a certain amount of controversy over here recently, once it was long listed for the book and, and so on, and you know, there have been suggestions of misogyny and so on and so forth in the, in the, in the writing. Um, was there an equivalent sort of controversy when it was first published in 2008 in, in Australia? No, no, and I actually think that goes back to class here. I think that, um, I think there is something, uh, and I'm, I think that one, I find it really strange that, um, that the novelist is confused with the character. I mean, I find that quite bizarre. <laughs> that, <laughs> You know, I kind of realised that reading Enid Blyton. That, you know. <laughs> um, um, but I do think that the, the, the notion here of the middle class is really the upper class. It's really genteel. It's really, you know, it's not people like Harry in the book. It's actually not people like Sandy in the book. Um, and so... I'm, I'm very happy to be challenged on the misogyny. Uh, it was one of the, the difficult things about writing the book, uh, was thinking, you know, I'm a man, how, how, how am I going to write these women and are, are they, are they going to seem real to you as, as readers? Um, but I don't, I, I don't think it's a misogynist book, but it is about really infantile men who, have, who are misogynist. Um, that confusion is strange to me that, that I've... And also, as I said, there's something about the class nature of it. I, I think the English language novel, and I'm not only talking about um, England or Scotland, or uh, I'm including, you know, my home country. Um, there has, there's almost a, a fearfulness now about writing the real world. I think. I mean, I just, it just seems that I don't read a lot of fiction, and I, I know this is a generalisation, and please, you know, argue me with it, but I just don't read a, a lot of contemporary fiction that strikes me as being of, the, of this world, true to the world at the moment. I think there's been a, a kind of a, an almost a fear of, um, of the challenging, the best part of what fiction can do, you know? I mean, yes, I read for beauty, but I also read for having my assumptions challenged for... Um, I read to be confronted. I read um, to be scared. I read to um, I read to cry. You know, I, um, and it seems that that novel isn't being written um, at the moment. I don't. Yeah, as I said, I'm willing to be argued yeah. with about I mean, that. It's, it's one of the interesting things about Harry, for example, I mean, is how being the obvious example in this context is how our view of him, I think, as a reader, changes during the course of the of the book, and we have a sort of broadly positive view of him at the beginning and his, the slap is justified and, and so on but of course as we find out more about him I think uh, it's much more finely nuanced as to how we, how we relate to him Harry um, I've talked about uh, Harry's violence against women is um, 
is, I, I think, the discovery of that is one of the big slaps in the yeah. book. Every, each yeah. chapter is a slap. I think that's the big slap. And I think Bilal, the Aboriginal man, saying to a white woman, Rosie, you are bad for me, is the other big slap in, in this book. Um, are there things that are, are unforgivable? I've, I was, I've, that question was going through my head in the, in the writing of, of, of this book. And I, Harry is based on, on a man I know. Uh, who, when we were young, we were really good friends. I went off to, to uni, he went to trade school, so our lives became separate after that, but we still, you know, we, we, we still meet up occasionally because we had this friendship. And then I came out as gay, and a few years after that, he, he came to see me, and we went out for a drink, and he told me when he was 15, 16, 17, 18, he would go around with a group of mates and what we call puftabash, going to parks, find homosexuals and bash them with a bat. So that, and I remember being furious and I remember being angry and I remember, you know, wanting to bash him <laughs> with a, um, but I also thought, you've come to apologize to this. You, you, yeah. you didn't have to tell me and I respect you for that. And it's like yeah. that, that question of the, you know, can we forgive, can, do, can people uh, reclaim and change their past? I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by that question. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing, and then maybe we'll open up for some questions mm. from, from the audience. Um, smells. There's a huge amount of stuff of people smelling each other. The smell, the children smell, the grandparents smell. Can you talk about that? I think I love smells. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's one of the, you know, it's one yeah. of our senses. Um, it's one of the things you... Um, of, of how you respond to to the world and how you respond to to people in you know like and you know your love of smell your your you know the the, the smell of a uh, that changing smell of a, a baby when um, it stops being breastfed and, and goes onto solids I mean yeah. that, that that's part of the world and I think that one of the things you want to do as a writer is is find ways of communicating those sensations so yeah, yeah smells I just think we don't don't talk enough about smells. <laughs> take some questions. Yes. Uh, very happy to take some questions. Um, we've got a colleague with a radio mic. It's helpful if you let them come to you first so that everybody else can hear the question. Anybody like to ask anything, Fristos? Yeah, there's a hand at the back, I see, and then one further forward. Good morning. Um, I'm um, from Melbourne myself originally. Um, I'm just wondering about the multicultural aspect um, that you touch on, and there's an article in The Scotsman today. Um, how do you rate um, multiculturalism in Melbourne in terms of success? Um, I guess it's a really difficult, it's probably a very difficult question. It's very different the way we embra it's embraced in this country, and I wonder if anyone's, any, if any country's successful at it. Melbourne's a very different city to many other cities. I now live in Brisbane or north of Brisbane, it's totally different to Melbourne, having grown up with many Greek people myself. No. So do you think we've improved the way we deal with people from different countries, oh, other than from a political point of view, because we're pretty hopeless at that? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that we have, it, it, is, it is funny how Melbourne is in a way, I, I, you know, uh, Melbourne feels so different to me to Sydney in terms of um, the nature of multiculturalism. Um, uh, just the, I remember a few years ago, a friend of mine, Natalie, 
who had a mixed Spanish Italian heritage, came from the western suburbs of Sydney. Um, sorry for this shorthand to, to you Scots people. <laughs> um, but, and she was saying one thing she loved about the streets, you know, Sydney Road in, in Melbourne is that you could have, you know, the Arab shops next to the Italian shops, next to the Vietnamese shops, next to the um, Somalian shops, and that she thought the, the other Australian cities were much more segregated in terms of how communities work. If you'd asked me that question in the early 90s, I would have thought we were done really well with multiculturalism. I think it was the, the last time I felt really proud of Australia because I'd come over to, um, uh, to Europe around that time and Europe, it was the fall of communism. There was throughout from the east uh, across to the west, all I heard was the most foul racism about immigrants and, and refugees. And I went back home thinking, we've done, we've done all right, you know, there are tensions. Um, but that, but we've, I think that things have gone backwards in that, that, that kind of hopefulness in, in what multiculturalism meant in Melbourne seems to, to not be there in Australia anymore. Do you, would you agree? No, I Yeah. I think I just think that the things have become more selfish just generally. I think that that's that you can't divide, you can't separate the politics of what's happening economically with how that reflects on things like multiculturalism. Things like I think that's that's what's happened. Somebody at the back had their hand up. Hello. Um, picking up on the point about your not finding a great deal to challenge your own assumptions and prejudices in 21st century fiction. I wondered if there was any particular era or certain authors that you look to for authenticity in fiction. Um, having said that, look, I, 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 um, there, are, there are a lot of writers who do that. I think um, it's one of the things about being Australian is that you are, um, in terms of literature, you have both the influence of this side of the world, but you also have the United States and Latin America, um, particularly United States and Canada because of the English language for us. And the Americans, to me, I find tougher. I find that maybe because the suburban experience is much more prominent in the, in the US and Canada um, as an Australian, that there's something that I find... Ref been a, just the, I picked up, been t talking to mates about it, I just picked up John Updike's Couples, um, written in the late 60s, um, and a writer who re I read when I was an adolescent and have kept, and it's a fantastic book and it's a really tough book and it's a really lacerating book about what we do in, in relationships and it has the C word and <laughs> it has, you know, that there's a feel fearlessness there that, um, that I'm hungry for. Um, I don't I think Sorry to do this to you, Natasha. A friend of mine gave me a book um, which was a, a collection of um, the best English short stories, I think, for 2009, and I was reading them the other night. A European, sorry. Best European short stories, so from across the continent. And I was really struck by how many of them were dry, academic, and not academic in the best way, like kind of actually in a really cheap, sh shoddy way and how very few of them actually talked about the real. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think I wanna, I, I wanna read something more vigorous and more challenging than I am at the moment. 
Another question? Yeah. Well, we could just yell it out. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned a couple of times that you think your generation is pretty selfish, and you seem to imply that there are problems with romantic, emotional relationships. But there's a lot of sex in the book, so can you comment on, on how those two things go together or don't go together? Um, well, I, I would... So I'm trying to think through the quick... Like, in terms of... For me as a writer, and I think... And for me as a person, really, and that, that is reflected in the writing, sex is this arena, uh, one of the greatest joys of my life, <laughs> but also it is one of those terrains where you... Kind of you, what you're exploring through in, in sex can be sometimes the, the, the things you most fear about yourself or kind of the... You, I, I don't think that sex is always a positive experience. I think sex can be um, ugly. I think sex can be hurtful. I think sex can be exquisite. It, it can be all those things. And I think sometimes, at least from in my life, I've kind of... The, you, you're acting out certain dishonesties or certain honesties in a relationship through sex. I'll, to give you, I'll, I'll give you an example because when the book came out in Australia, I was at a, a festival in Sydney and afterwards at the, the author signing, this woman said um, she was really angry um, that Aisha uh, has an affair in the book and then when she meets up with her husband on holiday, she has this really quite aggressive sex with him where she lets him uh, dominate her. And, and I was trying to explain that it comes from those moments when you've done something dishonest and you go back to your partner and you, you, you're not strong or courageous enough to admit to the guilt, so you, to what you've done, but you kind of play it out in the sex that you have. And this woman goes, well, I don't believe that. And then her friend, who was another woman standing next to her, went, yes, you just did that the other day. You told me. <laughs> <laughs> So don't reveal anything to me. Cause, um, <laughs> but uh, I, does that make sense that, in terms of the, the, your question? Or do you...? Yeah, I've heard, I've heard, I can't answer that to say. It, for me, it, was, it wasn't that I was just putting the, um, the sex in. I, I wanted to work out... I wanted to write a book about the, the nature of our relationships and for me part of the nature of our relationships is, our, is about our sexual lives. So, you know... It's, but it's hard to write sex, I do, know, I do agree there. It's one of the hardest things to do. Can you just talk a bit more about the, the interdependence between some of the couples, the married couples, in, in the book? I think it was, you know, if you take the example you give Aisha, she has this sort of brief affair when she's at the conference and so on, she comes back and they have this quite violent you know, sex, or she, she exceeds to his needs, and that's partly born out of the guilt. So could you just talk a little more about the, what, what is she providing for him by sort of exceeding to his, what he wants to do? Look, I think that... The re it's always a bit strange being the, 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 the writer and ask that question, because you you, you look, my response is always, I want you as a reader to do the work, yeah, and yeah, sure. I can't stand over every one of your sure. shoulders and go... <laughs> No, I'm not a misogynist. <laughs> um, um, I think there is a narcissism to both Asia and to Hector. Yeah. 
in terms of how they are in the world and a kind of a, um, a sense of being privileged that I, I think there is a form of love between them, but I think I think there's a also a laziness in terms of how they conduct, conduct that relationship. And um, I think that's the most anti-romantic part of the book is that, yeah. you know, you, I don't think you can finish the end of the slap and not go, these people are in it because it's easy, yeah. you know. And that's really hard kind of characters to have in a book, but I think it is true for a lot of relationships. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's, it's true, there are those relationships and that's what I was examining. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's very interesting the way it works because I think the, the brief relationship with the, the guy at the conference is, I thought, very romantic, actually. It's, it's, it's interesting juxtaposition that you're creating there, that the, the marriage is by far the, the less romantic of those two relationships. It's very easy to be romantic about someone you've just met. <laughs> you can, you know, that's, um, it's, you know, being with them for yeah. a long time that yeah. <laughs> is the hard work. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know. Uh, conference romances. <laughs> oh wow, they're wonderful. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. they don't fight in bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she idealises. Yeah, it. of course, she, she idealises yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Got another question? Over there. I can actually see there's a lady in that corner who wants to ask a question as well. By the way, um, the most interesting character for me was Bilal because I got the sense that you were trying to say that as an Aborigine, in order to be accepted, he had to go hyper good. He had to become, you know, almost a, a whiter than white. I know that's a strange expression. It, um, am I correct? Is that what you were... Were you making a wider point about Aborigines in Australia? Look, I think the, um, for me, uh, the thing about the Bilal character was... <laughs> all of us who are uh, uh, non-Indigenous in Australia have a relationship to, to kind of the continual harsh history of what's happened, you know, and, and presence in the country. So, you, you know, being Australian, uh, being a non-Indigenous Australian is always to be aware of this incredible rift that, that runs through the country. But I think for um, Rosie and Gary's people, you know, there's a sense, it's, it, it, there's a difference there, there's an acuteness there because they're Irish, English, Scottish, Welsh, ancestors were implicated so strongly in the violence. We still are. We, you know, everyone who's a settler generation keeps, um, is implicated. But there's a, it felt to me that there was a, a real difference there between the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. And Bilal is like, in order to exist in that rift, in that um, he has to and not into descend into despair and alcoholism and he he's had to make a choice that cuts him that kind of solidly cuts him out of 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 from those people that was what i was trying to get to like how extreme the situation is i think for aboriginal people in australia in terms of kind of existing in the world somebody over here this on this side Thank you. Uh, hello. Sorry. <laughs> it's a sort of strain around the pillar here. Um, I was interested in what you were saying about the European short stories you'd read 
And I was interested in what you were saying about the fact that your book, when published in Australia, hadn't had a massively controversial reception in the way that it has done here. Could these two things possibly be connected? I mean, is there a kind of anxiety or nervousness about what we want to read here that prevents us somehow from being able to fully appreciate your book, do you think? What's going on? Look, it's, it, in a way, that's a great question, but a great question that I, I don't feel... Every time I come to Europe, I come away feeling less and less European and more, um, more Australian. Um, not that I'm not... Of course I'm aware, and to the last question, that you know, the European heritage kind of has a particular meaning in Australia and it has, certainly has a, a meaning for Indigenous people kind of because of um, the, uh, the horror of that history. Um, but, yes, I feel Europeans are, are much more... We have class in Australia, and one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is to say, look, this is how class works in Australia. It feels so much heavier, the weight of class in Europe. And as I said, not only being here in Scotland, or, um, but I feel that in Greece, I feel that in Italy. I think there is... Um, and that must have an effect on your literature, but I am a stranger here. I can't... I, I, I'm not quite sure if I can answer that. Properly, I mean, I think it's a good question to ask European writers on this stage, like what they think of what's happening in the novel, what's happening in the story. Does, is, does that lie behind you? you? You were saying just now that you have the sort of affinity with the sort of American U U.S. writers of, the, of that 50s, 60s, 70s generation. Is that is there a link there with that sort of relative meritocracy of that society? You think the, the less class-ridden? Yeah, I think that I think there is that relationship. Um, you know that that thing about the new world, you yeah. know, and that so that there are different, and also so for I, I think a really good example to give you, just to illustrate that is as a young man coming to writing and I, you know, being passionate about writing, I read the Americans, the the U.S. writers, um, and you know so many of them were children or grandchildren of immigrants themselves, you know, largely Jewish um, in terms of the writers I was loving like Roth um, and Mailer, and there was no equivalent. There was no equivalent books coming coming from my country, let alone from here, that had that resonance and um, that. And so, yes, I think there is a relationship to do with um, the new world. I'm, and I'm very conscious of. I, actually, old world, new world is a lie because I come from a country that is older than yours in terms of its history and culture. Um, but let's use it as a shorthand <laughs> for the moment. I think there is a, a difference. Um, in the American writing that I respond to. And also, I, I will say that about the Latin Americans too, that, that um, I've, I'm learning Spanish at the moment, and one of the reasons I'm learning Spanish is so I can read in, in, in Spanish uh, and not be reliant on translation. Um, because I think there is something about the, the experience of um, the Spanish-speaking world um, that resonates with me, and then this vast difference because it's another language, it's another... It, it's, kind of mirrored through Catholicism and in a very different way to home. Another question? Yeah. Having said that, can I... I remember reading... Sorry, really, just... I remember reading Midnight's Children in... I must have been in my early 20s and remember the excitement of that book, kind of the, the excitement of, wow, this is saying something about... The world, not the world I know, but the world that I can 
under, you know, can jump right into it. And, um, I just, I don't want to sound like, you know, I never read the Europeans. I love, I love the novel. I love what it does. I love what's come from here. How can I not write and not do that? But I just want to have that kind of sensation when I read stuff. I'm just remembering Midnight's Children. Hi, um, I come from Scotland, but I worked in Australia for a while, and I, I taught English out there. And I was really impressed with the program they had for migrants new into Australia. But what I found, I don't know if um, you would agree, that um, the sort of Greek and Italian families that moved over there, it was like they were a bit bitter, and they were taking it out on the new Asian migrants who were coming in. And I was working with the new Asian migrants, and I, I found that very strange. And I didn't see that so much in Britain. I felt the people who had migrated here but maybe I'm being naive, we're, you know, we're, we're welcoming other migrants, but I felt this kind of recurrence, whereas, um, as I say, the, Greek, the new European migrants to Australia were kind of bitter to the, the Welsh, Irish, Scottish, but, but then they were being very, I felt, racist and negative. Yeah. And I wondered if you, have, you felt that, and if you were touching on that with Aisha, that, you know, her Greek son had married an Indian lady. Oh, yeah, I think that was um, uh, one of the, the big disappointments you know, I was talking about this selfishness of uh, my generation. Is people like, like you know, who, whose parents have had this, who should be the first people to understand the what it means to migrate, what it means to be a refugee. What um, within a generation or two become as racist as, um, as the most racist Australian, and and that was one of the. I think that's one of the tensions in multiculturalism that that we don't know how to talk about very well in Australia. We're still, we're still trying to find a language about it. Um, and I think there is there's almost a fear of bringing it up. Um, and I think we need to be a bit more fearless in, in discussing it, kind of. I, I just, see, again, it's best to go from examples. So I know when I've talked to Greek origin people that I've wanted to talk about that, and often community leaders will say, no, no, it's too controversial, don't, don't bring it up. Well, I think you'd need to bring it up, you do need to, because this is, if something called multiculturalism is going to succeed, it has to, it's not only people here at this kind of event talking about it, it I, my parents need to be part of that conversation, you know, the, the people you work with need to be part of that conversation, and I don't know if that's happening in Australia, what would, and it sounds like you don't think it is either, the, yeah. 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 Christos, you, you said earlier that the last time you were proud of your country was in the early 90s, I think. Um, and what has followed is a period of great wealth, material wealth and so on. So, presumably it's not just to do with there being too much money around. What's changed? What's gone wrong in your view over the last 15 years or so? Oh, look, um, Steve, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not running away from this question. I, I mean, I think it, it's just it's so... It, it, it is quite a big question, you know. I think that uh, the politics of uh, fear that happened after the uh, terrorist bombings in New York kind of have accelerated um, the ability of of people to justify their racism and xenophobia in in terms of uh, th there is a sense in Australia, and I'm, I think there is of, of a kind of things are not secure. You know, it doesn't matter how many plasma TVs we have, things we're fearful. fearful. I think that that has played a huge element in in um, in the kind of society we have at the moment. I also think that you know, since the the end of um, 
the kind of the utopias of socialism. Like there hasn't, the left has, uh, and again, I'm talking about my country. There's, it just has lost a language of communicating with people. So you have something like the Labor Party, which is supposedly the Labor, the party of the working woman and man in in Australia, and it it is lacks any moral centre um, at, at at the moment. And I I think that has something to do with it as well. That there are there are actually the alternatives with the exception probably of the Greens back home, uh, are just dire. That's, I wish I could be more hopeful, but that's what I, what I think is true about, about home. We've just got time for one more question. Yeah, I can see a hand at the back. Uh, you spoke about the gift, which uh, was a sort of spark for this novel. Um, are there any um, recent gifts that you might like to share with us now? <laughs> I was... I, I've, I had this idea for the last year about this novel I want to I write. I've been researching it. It's about a, a young uh, guy, working-class kid, who's got a phenomenal talent as a, a swimmer. Um, and it, it's kind of taking him... Anyway, that's the idea. And I didn't know how to start it. I really didn't know how to, you know, you know... I'd had these notes and I'd done a bit of writing and then I've been at this place, Cove Park in Argyle and it was fantastic and it was, you know, it was an amazing summer here. <laughs> you know, there was this uh, great, um, great summer's day and I went to Luss on uh, Loch uh, Lomond and all the Glaswegians were out, kind of everyone had taken off their clothes and were swimming and I put my foot in the water and man was it freezing. <laughs> 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 and I just, I, it was just the image I needed. So it begins on the beach at Luss on Loch Lomond where an Australian's going, these people are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now you're going to sign some books? I would yep. be happy to. Christos is happy to sign copies of his books, which will be in the bookshop on the left uh, as you leave this venue. But first of all, if you would, would you join me in thanking Christos Tolkas? Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk along with a selection of videos.